Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are studying uh, 1 Samuel. Today is going to begin our study in, in that book. <clears throat> Just to set a little bit of groundwork, I don't want to spend a lot of time going into the history because uh, we, I want to go through chapters 1 and 2 today. But just to give you a little bit of uh, a scope for, for this book, this book happens after the events of Judges. So if you're just looking at your Bible, the books are ordered uh, in the way they're ordered for a reason. You've got the history of Israel coming out of slavery from Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. You see that story in Exodus. Um, then you see the law um, being expanded, uh, uh, the the offerings, um, the commandments for the priests, and the way that uh, sacrifices and festivals are supposed to be working in Leviticus. Then you get into Numbers, and Numbers is split up into two big sections. Numbers, the beginning of Numbers starts with this big census, and then the middle of Numbers towards the end has another census, and the two census um, takes are, the two censuses are uh, collections, I don't think that's a word. Um, they're a collection, the first one is the, the, the people that came out of Egypt. Um, the, the first generation of Jewish people who were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then the second group of numbers, the census, is the next generation as they're about to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy is a summary of everything that took place during that 40 years. It's Moses kind of writing a, um, a brief cliff's notes of everything that took place. And then you get into Joshua. Joshua's taking this new generation into the promised land. There's a lot of conquering. And then they settle. The tribes get into their lands, they settle, and then it's the book of Judges. That's kind of the order. It's the order of the books. And we did a message series on Judges when we first moved into this building. I asked you to kind of read through the book as preparation for 1 Samuel. Judges is an incredibly dark book. It's really dark. It ends on a terrible note. It ends with almost the complete slaughter of one whole tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. They're almost completely wiped out because of sin. And the book ends this way. It says, at that time there was no king in the land and everybody did what was right in their own mind. Everyone just kind of decided for themselves what was right. It was an unbelievably dark time. But then you've got 1 Samuel. But in between Judges and 1 Samuel, there's this other really odd book called Ruth. And the book is titled after this female who is the main character in this story. And the story starts off, it's in the time of Judges and it is dark, it, is a, it starts off not great, but by the end of the book there's this, it's almost like someone just, um, just took a shot and just jammed it into somebody's heart and just pumped them full of adrenaline and all of a sudden there's this hope in the middle of all this darkness. Everyone's doing what's right in their own mind and all of a sudden this one girl was redeemed and her entire life was changed because one man redeemed her. And the book ends with the genealogy of the King David, of King David. So it's interesting because the, the whole setting is dark, 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 and then all of a sudden there's this little glimmer of hope. There's a promised king coming and this king is coming through the lineage of this woman who wasn't even Jewish. And then we get into 1 Samuel. And so the order of the books tell a story. And that's the reason why they're ordered that way. Now they're ordered differently in other uh, translations. Um, for example, in the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, some of the books are uh, ordered differently. Some of them are collected differently. For example, in, um, uh, in uh, the Septuagint, when you were to go and read, you wouldn't see uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. You'd see 1 Kingdoms, 2 Kingdoms, 3 Kingdoms, and 4 Kingdoms. It's the same story, they're just ordered differently. But the point is that the order tells a story. And we're supposed to be reading this with that anticipation that the story is in the middle of the darkest period you could possibly imagine. There's this glimmer of hope. It ends, so Ruth ends with this glimmer of hope and then 1 Samuel picks up with this hope. It starts in the same way that Ruth does. There's this idea of like sadness and sorrow. There's this woman who's barren and she's being mocked. And then all of a sudden, 
Something happens, and like a ray of sunshine just kind of breaks through. And from that point forward, things start changing. And so that's the, that's the attitude we're supposed to be reading this book. It's bad, but hope is coming. So that's, the, that's kind of the feeling of the book, but there's two big reasons why I want us to read this book. First is I want you to pay attention in this book of the transition from the period of the judges in Israel into the period of the kings. Judges were simply military leaders. They didn't rule over the people. They were raised up to lead the army to go defeat whatever needed to be defeated, and then they just kind of chilled, and Israel went back to doing their own thing. But there was no king at the time. But we're moving into, in the book of 1 Samuel, this transition into kings. But it doesn't matter if the leadership style is judges or kings. What you're going to see is that all of the leaders continue to just fail. Even the best one we can pick from the story, King David, one of the best kings that lived, the one who, we, who, who we're told that in the New Testament, Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David. So, like, David's a pretty big character. Even he fails us. And so what I want us to pick up as we're reading through this is the idea that there is hope in this story but it's not found in the human leaders. The hope in this story is found in God and God alone because the best leader that mankind can create still pales in comparison to the glory of God. You don't put your hope in human leaders or human institutions. That's the message of this book. Second, the reason why I want us to read this is I want you to pay attention to the theological implications of this book. I just told you in different translations of the Bible, um, these books are ordered differently and described differently. In, um, in our English Bible, this section of literature would be called the historical writings. But in the Hebrew Bible, they're called the former prophets, which is, I find interesting. So Joshua judges, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings are referred to as the former prophets. And then uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and the book of the 12, those are the latter prophets. Now I bring that up because if we're just going to read this as historical literature, then we're going to walk away the same way we would walk away from a history book. Enlightened in certain areas, but not challenged at our heart level. But that's not the point of this book. The point of this book is that it is historically seen as prophetic literature. And so it has authority to speak to us on issues of obedience and worship and sin and repentance. So as we study first and second Sam, first and second Samuel, first Samuel, first, it, it is history, but it's not just history. It's history and it's also theology. So with that setting, let's get into the book. First Samuel chapter one. Let's start in verse one. It says, there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehor, excuse me, Joram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. All right, we're starting to see the issues here. The name of one of his wives was Hannah, and the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. But though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to it, Hannah, honey, 
sweetie. <laughs> why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Oh, my man. This guy needs a marriage seminar. <laughs> All right, so we're entering the story here, and it's incredibly personal from the very first verses in the first chapter. We've got a personal look at this Jewish family, and this guy is a God-fearing man. He takes his family every year to go make the sacrifices as they commanded, but I say God-fearing tongue-in-cheek because he has two wives. His first wife, Penina, had many children, and this girl mocked his other wife, Hannah, for having no children. Now, some people speculate that the reason why he had two wives is because the first wife he married was probably Hannah, that's the one he loved, and God had closed her womb so she couldn't have children, and in order to keep his family going, he took on another wife in the same tradition in the way that Sarah had allowed Abraham to take a concubine and have other children. That's just speculation, but that, is my, that might be what's going on here. But what we're drawn into is this idea that one of the wives who had abundance mocked the other wife who was barren. And I just want you to put yourself as a fly on the wall in that situation and just imagine how horrible it was for Hannah to live under those conditions. Penina's getting her kids ready and, you know, her, her little son Joseph, you know, she's like, she's like, okay, Joseph, let's make sure that we have all the things, let's make sure all of our kids have all of our things, because I have so many kids. And Joseph's like, you know, I mean, why, why does God bless us so much with so many kids and not Hannah? I don't know. Maybe God doesn't love Hannah. I mean, I, I just want you to think for a moment what it was like, because we read this, we think, okay, he, he mocked her, but, but we know what mocking sounds like. We know what it, like, what, it, what it sounds like when someone takes a tone, and we know how much we dislike that. I want those feelings and emotions to be rolling around in your head as you're reading this, because that's what the writer is asking you to consider. Consider the pain that this woman is going through as they're going to worship the Lord. This is the thing that should be making the people of God filled with joy, but she's only filled with sorrow because she can't get her mind off of this one thing that she doesn't have. So they go to Shiloh, and Shiloh is where Moses' tabernacle was. So I told you kind of the order of events of them coming out of uh, uh, Egypt and then into the Promised Land. They had Moses' tabernacle. Where did it end up? It ended up in Shiloh. Let me show you on a map where that would have looked like. So this is our first Samuel uh, 1 through 2 map. This right here, I'm sorry that you guys on the side don't have red dots. I, I would give you a red dot, but it, it doesn't reflect. So, uh, This big section of water right here in the middle, this is the Dead Sea. Okay? This, this river here is the Jordan River. And we're told that Elkanah and his wives and his family, they were from a city called Ramah. And they traveled north up to Shiloh. Now, just for you playing at home, uh, Jericho is like right around here. Jerusalem's right around this area. Shiloh is up here, okay? So now that you have kind of a lay of the land. Shiloh is where Moses' tabernacle was. It's where the priesthood resided, and that's where they facilitated all of the yearly worship, which is probably one of the things that they were coming here to do to sacrifice for the Passover. And at this Passover, Hannah is completely gripped with sorrow because she has this constant relentless mocking in her ear about where she's coming up short as a woman in this particular culture. And she's crying and she's weeping and her husband Elkanah, he, he tries to do his best but his words fall flat. He, I mean, we're gonna get, we gotta give him a little bit of credit. He tried. He reached out to her and he's essentially, and what he's saying is he's saying like, look, I treasure you not for what you can do or what you can produce. I treasure you for who you are. I value you as a human being, an image bearer of God. I love you for who you are and not what you can produce. But it doesn't matter. Her sorrow runs deep. And when mere human words can't comfort you, there's only one thing you can do. You take your sorrow to the place that can change it. 
So what does Hannah do? She prays. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because I want this text to remind us of where we should go with our sorrow. There is some comfort that we might find in commiserating with people when things aren't going our way. When we're deep in sorrow, sometimes it feels good to just let it out and share something with somebody, but most of the time, all you're doing is just releasing the pressure and nothing actually gets solved. So the question that this text is asking us is when you hit that point of sorrow, when things aren't going your way, when everything is upside down, what do you really want? Do you want a human to come and whisper something in your ear that relieves the pressure but doesn't stop the mocking, or do you really want a solution to your problem? Because if you really want solutions to your problem, there's only one person that you can bring your problems to who can solve them. You need somebody who's outside of the situation that can bring in transformation and change because you and your own power literally don't have any resources to change where you're at. But, but there is someone who does. And Hannah is modeling for us what we do when we're in those situations. So I want you to go to verse 9. Let's pick up and see what she does uh, in her prayer. So after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and whipped, excuse me, wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and do not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give, to him, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. That is a reference to uh, what's called a Nazarite vow. It was a, a special commitment that somebody in Israel could take for a period of time where they were literally devoted to the Lord. They wouldn't cut their hair, they wouldn't touch anything dead, there were specific restrictions, but the whole point was to rearrange your life in such a way that outwardly it was obvious that this guy is devoted to the Lord in the way that he looked, in the way that he smelled, everything. So what she's saying is, Lord, if you give me a child, I will give this child to you, and they'll be a Nazarite their whole life. This person will be devoted to you, not for a period of time, but I will give this child to you for your service. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunk woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Please do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli said, Oh, well, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. He didn't even ask what the petition was. He just felt led by the God to say, well, prayer's answered. Go home. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. That moment, her entire mood changed. And they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked from him, from the, I, would, I have asked for him from the Lord. The Samuel is a derivative of the Hebrew word that means to ask. So let's summarize the story. After dinner, Hannah goes and weeps bitterly. She's praying in her, uh, over by the, the tabernacle, the She's, she's just kind of letting it all out. And essentially what she's doing is she's setting herself against the way things are in prayer. She's saying, all right, this is the way that things have been. I've been told this is the way things, have, that this is the way things are, that things can't be changed. 
but I trust that you're a God who can change things that have already been decided, and I'm pleading with you that you change this. This has been said about me, and I want something different, and so I'm praying. And she prays that God would end her barrenness, and God is listening. Because God wants the same thing. See, we're told at the beginning of this story that God is the one who made her barren. God said, I'm going to make you barren, and therefore she was barren. And now she comes before the Lord and she prays and she pleads with God. Change this, end this, make me not barren. God says, hmm, I can answer that prayer because as I'm looking down on my people, your womb, Hannah, is not the only thing that's barren in this land. When I look at you, you're kind of a representation of the whole of my people. The priesthood is currently barren. In fact, the priesthood is so barren that when a woman came to the tabernacle and started praying... Eli the priest doesn't even recognize what prayer looks like. The guy who should have gotten it right on the first shot is looking at this woman and his assumption, his automatic, his go-to is this woman's not praying because this is a tabernacle. This woman is drunk. My man, you don't know what prayer looks like? That's kind of your job. God's saying, there's a lot more barren in this land than just your womb. And so your prayer to change what, what it looks like on the inside of your body, I want to answer that prayer because I want my entire body, Israel, to look differently. And so I'm going to answer your prayer by giving you that child because what I want is that child to clean house. And so essentially what's happening here is Hannah's prayer aligns with God's desires. We'll get to that in a second, but the thing I want to draw our attention to in uh, 17 through 20 is Hannah's response when Eli said, your prayer is answered, go along your way. She didn't need any outside evidence to change her mood. She didn't need a baby bump. She didn't need to go and buy larger pants. She didn't need any evidence that showed, okay, things are different now. God answered your prayer, and now you're going to have a child. There was no inner feeling. All she needed was God saying yes, and her entire mood changed. She got up. She started eating. She lifted her face. She went home. She acted on what God spoke, and everything from that point forward was different. And what's interesting about this is how quickly things in this girl's life changed. I think it's a good note for us to take from this text. That sometimes when God responds and answers your prayer, we're sitting here waiting for some evidence of the answered prayer, and God's saying, no, no, I, I, I said yes, I just want you to go out and I want you to follow me. Well, okay, well, can I, can I get some kind of clue in on that? No, I, remember we're people of faith, and so I just need you to trust that when I say yes, it's enough. And you might not always see the outside circumstances pointing to that yes every single day, but I want you to be anchored in my yes, and that's enough. Let's go to, uh, well, I just kind of want to summarize this for time, verses 21 through 28. Uh, following this, Samuel uh, uh, grew, so they went home, and then Samuel uh, grew, she was raised, um, wasn't old enough to join Eli, but what uh, Hannah did was she said, I'm going to stay home with this boy, uh, Elkanah, you keep taking Penina up to the temple every year, and I'm going to stay home and wean him until he's old enough to go and serve in the temple. And finally, they were, uh, the child was old enough, and Hannah and the family went up, and they worshiped, and Hannah presented Samuel to Eli and said, hey, do you remember me? I'm the woman who was praying, and you thought I was drunk. Look, here's the answer to my prayer. It's my boy Samuel, and I'm giving him in service to the Lord. 
I'm lending him to God for God's purposes. And then after she shared her testimony with Eli, she prayed. And I want you to listen to this woman's prayer because it's pretty regular for us to assume that like, okay, well, <clears throat> in this culture, like, like women weren't really taught a lot of things and therefore they probably didn't pick up a lot of things and they, they weren't really smart and the only thing that they had to do was like make babies and that was their role in society. But when you listen to this woman's prayer, you don't walk away with the understanding that this girl didn't have a robust theology of who God was. So let's go to it. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. It says, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life, and he brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. And the Lord makes poor, and he makes rich. And he brings low, and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Dang, girl. This girl had a view of God that I don't know many church people have. She's saying, I've read about the kind of things that you have done, and I watched you do it in my own womb. But there's something else that she sees. She knows something else about God. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off into darkness. Not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Oh, man, she's getting apocalyptic now. So now we're talking about, Lord, thank you for creating a baby inside of my womb. And, 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 and when I think on that and when I pray to you, I'm, I'm reminded that like, that's kind of what you do everywhere. Like you have a promise to humanity that you'll redeem mankind. And, and I'm believing that you're going to accomplish that plan through me. And part of that plan means making the, jade, the nations come into uh, accountability for the way that they've uh, acted. You're going to judge the nations, and you might even do it through my own child. And then look what she says. She says, he, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That is fascinating. Why is that fascinating? Because there was no king in Israel at this time. So what is she talking about? She's talking about something that she believes and something that she sees for this people before it even takes place. And she references the anointing. She's going to exalt, he is going to exalt the horn of his anointed. And he's going to give strength to his king. Later in the story, we're going to find out that, that after Saul becomes king, there's another king that's going to step in. And there's this guy named Samuel who's going to anoint this kid David as king with a horn of oil. What is she talking about? She's talking about things that she believes and sees in God that the rest of the world is too busy to think on. Everyone else is just thinking about, well, I just got to get to work and I got to get this offering. I got to take care of my kids and I got to do this. But her view, because of the barrenness that she walked through, she has a view of God that most of us, we just completely miss because we don't understand the suffering that it took for her to have that wide view of God. But she is looking at an unbelievably big God. And this story is so rich with those prophetic um, uh, tones. Here's what I mean by that. This story started with a woman that was exploited and mocked. But what did she do with that exploitation and that mockery? It drove her to prayer. And in prayer, she pleads to God, I want to end this barrenness in my life, and if you do that in me, 
I will give the first fruits of my child to you. They will serve you all the days of their life. And God says, I like that prayer because that's the kind of prayer that I would want someone to pray. I want someone to pray that because I also want to end the barrenness in this land. And so what happens is Hannah comes before the Lord and starts praying the kind of prayers that God wants her to pray, and surprise, her prayers get answered. What's the point? The point is if you want your prayers answered, pray the kind of things that God is already in the business of doing. When Jesus says pray like this, our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's not just saying, say these words. He's saying, this is the highway that God is always on. And if you want your prayers answered, get where he's at. Don't stand over here in left field and ask God to come over here and bless your thing. Find out what God is up to and pray along those lines and surprise every time you pray, your, your prayers are gonna get answered. It's crazy the way that works. Because God is looking for a, a, a way to end the barrenness among his people, and he hears that same cry in the heart of this woman, and he says, yeah, I'm going to answer that, and I'm going to blow things up through that child. And that's where we go next. 1 Samuel chapter 2. After this prayer, we get an interesting contrast in the text. We've seen Hannah, we've seen this one family, we've seen this kid named Samuel who's gonna start growing up. And in verse 12, we pick up this really interesting story about Eli and his sons, and we start to find out the reason why he was so quick to think that this girl was drunk, because there's a way that humans, when they start walking in wickedness and playing around with sinful things, and walking in darkness, they can't help but just assume that everyone else does the same things they do. There's this way that we think that, well, like, well, if I couldn't accomplish that, certainly this person couldn't accomplish that. Because I like these things, surely these other people should like these things, and if they don't, then they're wrong and I'm right. And if I have these two boys who don't spend much time praying around the tabernacle, then who is this woman to show up to the tabernacle and I'm gonna assume that she's praying if my own boys don't pray around the tabernacle, you see? And so he's already assuming the motives of people's heart before they even show up because his view of ministry has been clouded by the way his boys are functioning in ministry. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. I find that word interesting because the last time we saw it was back in chapter 1 when Eli calls Hannah worthless. He doesn't, the text doesn't say he calls her that, but she responds, she says, the way you're talking to me, like, look, I'm not a worthless woman. I'm not somebody who has no value. I'm not worthless. But then we find out there is somebody in the story who is worthless. It's Eli's sons. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it down into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork would bring up, the priests would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, just a side note, this is what's called sin. And the reason why it's called sin is because we're told in Leviticus 7, 25 through 36 that there were instructions on what the priests were supposed to eat. If somebody brought a bird, you don't cook the bird and then thrust a fork in and whatever you get, magically surprised, this is what I'm gonna feed my family. In Leviticus 7, the priests were commanded that they could have the breast and the left thigh. That's it, that's what you get. But they're taking more. And they're not even just taking more by thrusting down into the pot in the middle of the sacrifice. Verse 15, moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for they will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. So before they were actually able to sacrifice the meat to the Lord and burn the fat off, which was part of the offering process, the servants of the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, would come and they would take the meat from the people before they were actually even able to offer it to sacrifice. And the man would say to him, please, let them burn the fat first because 
Leviticus 7 is clear that it is sin if anybody takes the fat off of the meat before we burn it. Just let us do that first, and you can take as much as you wish. And he said, no, you must give it now, because if you don't, I'm going to take it by force. This is the servant speaking. Thus the sin of the young man was very great in the eyes of the Lord, and the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a a boy clothed with a linen ephod. That's interesting. We're told that Eli's boys were wicked men, and then all of a sudden, right in the middle of the story, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. His mother used to make him a little robe and take it to him every year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. So then she would return her home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. There it is again. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all his sons were doing all in Israel and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's not good. It's not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, nobody's going to mediate for him. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So in the middle of this barrenness, we see that it's not just in Eli. It's also in his lineage and his sons. The barrenness runs through his own boys, so deep that they are committing um, atrocities with the sacrifice, that they are committing sexual immorality, that they're sleeping with some of the women who are coming up to offer sacrifices. It's a nightmare. And this is supposed to be God's house. And in the middle of all of this wickedness, we see the story bracketed by little Samuel. Eli is a nightmare, but Samuel is ministering before the Lord. Eli's boys are a nightmare, but but Samuel is ministering before the Lord. Eli went and talked to his boys and told them to quit doing what they're doing, but Samuel was faithful and still serving the Lord. You see this in 10.11, excuse me, 2.11, 2.18, 2.26, and 3.1. Every indictment against what's going on in the priesthood is bracketed by a faithful remnant of God raising up this little boy. Until one day when a prophet shows up and delivers a really rough message to Eli. Let's read that and we'll finish this chapter. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father, he's speaking of the Levites, all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? And my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. We're going to find out later in this book that Eli was a pretty rotund man. And so we know that he was part of this wickedness of stealing the food from the offerings. Therefore, here's what the Lord's going to do. The God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That's interesting. The Lord said, I promised that this thing was going to happen, but I'm not going to continue to let you act this way. And so though I promise this thing, I'm going to end your lineage. Behold, the days are coming, verse 31, that I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be a single old man in your house. And then in distress you will look with with envious eye on the prosperity that that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be a single old man in your house forever. There's going to be no lineage in your home. 
The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes and to grieve in his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. It's going to be so bad that the only person who is left, is the only thing he's going to be doing is crying about how much sorrow has spread through your family because of your wickedness. And this shall come upon your two sons. So as a promise that I'm going to do this. Just so you're a, if you're a little unclear, I'm going to make sure that you know that I'm the one that's going to do this. And, and, and here's how you're going to know. On the same day, Hophni and Phinehas are both going to die. Both your boys are going to die on the same day. Verse 35, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will bind him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver, a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This unnamed prophet does what is essentially functions in the same way that the Word of God functions in our life. Out of nowhere, this unnamed guy comes in and speaks truth and calls repentance. And he says, because you aren't turning. See, here's the thing. The boys, Eli couldn't have stopped them from sinning, but he could have taken them out of their job. He could have fired them. But because he didn't do any of that stuff, and because he didn't call his children to repentance, God says, I'm going to send a prophet to end your ministry. This is done. We are done. Everything's, we're, we're finished. It's going to be so finished that by the time we get to the end of this thing, there's not going to be a single old man in your entire family lineage that's going to be left. The only thing that's going to be left is one old man sitting in the corner weeping and crying over the fact that everything has been taken from you. Now, this fulfillment takes place in 1 Kings 2.35. We see that Solomon ultimately fulfills this prophecy when he eliminates the family lineage of Eli through Abathar and then puts in this other guy named Zadok, and a new priesthood family takes over. This is also an allusion to what Christ is going to do. We're told that God is going to put in a faithful priest that will do according to everything that is in his heart and mind. He's going to build him a sure house. He's going to go in and out before the anointed forever. He's talking about Christ. That was the whole point of the book of Hebrews when we were studying it that last week. But as we're reading through this text, there's something that really jumps out at me, and this is what I want to end on today. This book contains a bold contrast of ministries. You've got the barren woman and Samuel, and then you've got these wicked self-serving sons, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. So on one hand, you've got wickedness and corruption. On the other hand, you've got humility and devotion. And God is working in the midst of, every, of, of all these parts. Why? Because both of these parts exist within his family and his community. So he's answering prayers that are revolving and, and moving in these parts of this community. It's the tabernacle. All the people are centered around it. You've got all these parts, these characters that are being played. But the thing that strikes me the most is that the names of these people are called out. These are not just like characters within the story. Like, these are real people with real names. You've got Elkanah, Penina, Hannah, Samuel, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas. Two chapters, and we're seven names in. Some of these characters are self-serving, trying to do things their own way. Some of these characters um, are trying to be good husbands. Some of these characters are lousy wives. Some of these characters are, are praying with passion, and some of these characters are just judging the others. And what strikes me is how similar this story sounds like the local church. Ah, there it is. There's the gut punch. This story that seems so long ago, so foreign. It isn't that foreign. It isn't that far away. In the community of the local church, you see the same things happening. You see pastors abusing their power. You see deacon boards trying to 
rally power to beat other people with it. You see church members who the only reason why they're showing up is because somebody told them that they needed to be there. Their wife wanted them to be there or their husband wanted them to be there. Kids sitting in the pews saying, I really can think of like 11 things I'd rather be doing than sitting here listening to this guy talk about a story that is not relevant to me. You've got women who, who are barren. You've got marriages that are barren. You've got husbands and wives who have raised children together. They've worked in, in jobs together. And finally, both of them retired. And now they're sitting in the same home and they're realizing they don't really like each other very much. Is that, is that close to home enough? This isn't a foreign story. This is a familiar story, and it's filled with pain and sorrow. But the thing I want you to understand is that in the middle of all the pain and the sorrow and the weirdness and the goodness, God is in the middle of it. There's hope in the middle of it. But clouded around all that hope and all that sorrow and all of the story, there's people. There's people's names. And as we go through this book, we're going to see more and more and more names. And I want you to become more familiar with those names. I want you to know the names of the prophets and these characters who, who demonstrated faith and who said, I don't want anything to do with God. And they, and they walked in rebellion. I want you to be familiar with those names, but there's something else I want to ask you today. In this community of names in the book of 1 Samuel that we're going to become familiar with, are you also familiar with the other community that you're part of, which is your local church? Now listen to me. We're starting to hit that point in our church where we're growing, and it's easy to get lost. You know, some people are like, what kind of church are you looking for? One, well, one that's small, but also large enough that no one will know if I was there or not. You know what I mean? And we're starting to get there a little bit. And so what you see is there, there, there are people who have been for here for a while, people that are coming to check it out, people that are coming, I've been here like three months, and, and there's that classic church weirdness where you've introduced yourself to somebody and then you can't remember their name and so that you just kind of avoid them and you don't talk to them again. Or you do what I did literally before the service started. I walked up to a gentleman and I said, hey, is your name David? He said, nope, my name's Lou. Uh, my apologies. My point is that this can get really weird really fast. But the idea that this can continue to grow and exist like every other church and you don't have to know anybody's name is unbiblical. This is the big issue with large churches. I'm not against large churches, but there is one big issue with large churches. You can hide because no one does the work of knowing your name. And here's the reason why a lot of people like small churches, because everyone knows your name and everybody's in your business. It's the reason why some people like large churches, because they don't want anybody knowing their name and they don't want anybody in their business. But your mom gave you a name for a reason. And this story is filled with names. And as we enter into the community of Israel and we start becoming familiar with the names in this book, I don't want you to be so familiar with these names and, ig and ignorant of the names of the people sitting next to you. So this is like, you're sitting here like, man, that's a weird turn. Like we're just reading first and then you're talking to me about knowing the names of the people. That's, well, get used to it. That's what we do around here, it's weird. This is the application of the text today. The reality that as we continue to grow, it will be easier and easier for you to ignore the people that God has called into your community by simply just not knowing their name. And I'm convinced, I, people have asked me like, you know, I'm kind of sad, you know, the church doesn't feel small anymore, and like, oh, I kind of missed it back in the old days. Here's what you're saying. You missed the days when people knew your name. You like a little bit of people being in your business. I don't want everybody in my business, but I want some people to care. I want to know that somebody's praying for me. And look, if none of that seems appealing, I got bad news for you. Church is not for you. But here's what I want as we start into this book. I want us to start being more proactive about learning each other's names. 
Because I'm convinced that that is the secret sauce all throughout the Word of God that transforms a community. If you don't know people's names, then they're just that person that, that you see once a week and you feel no need to want to go break bread with them or get coffee with them or learn their kids' names or learn what, what their history is or what they've suffered through or what they're currently suffering through. You don't know how to pray for them because no one knows you and that's just not good enough around here. I want us to be a church. I don't care how big or how small we are. I want us to be a church that is known for knowing people's names. And you're like, all right, I'm out. I'm not good at that. Well, look, there's lots of things you're not good at, but you try anyway. I'm convinced that this is fundamental to kingdom life. How are we going to keep that sense of like small community? How do we keep that sense where like in between the worship and the word, like there's like 10 minutes of people just talking. You learn people's names. And listen, I'm not asking you to do something that I would not first do. It's the reason why I carry around this notebook filled with names. When I meet somebody, I take out this notebook because socially it's weird to take out your phone in the middle of a conversation. So I take out a notebook and I write down people's names. And I quiz myself throughout the week to try and remember these names. I'm not perfect. Some of you with like 97 children, it's gonna be a little while. <laughs> but I'm committed to it. Because if somebody at the church doesn't know your name and greets you with your own name, let's be honest, what is the purpose of going to that church? If no one knows you, if no one's praying for you, if no one cares enough to know your name and say your name, what is the point of doing this thing? We're going to be spending eternity together, and you can't learn each other's names? Look, this is a hard thing. I get it. This is tough. But as a pastor, this is the direction I want our church to move in. I want there to be an expectation in this church that we know the names of God. We know the names of God's people in this book, and we know each other's names. Amen? If you're not with it, that's fine. There are plenty of churches that won't make that demand on you. But around here, I want us to know each other. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.